Well, it is good to be standing on my own two feet. Last week, on Sunday night, I had the opportunity to go be with one of our partners uh, in the faith, Brother Doug Ripley at the Decatur Baptist Church, and I told them, uh, matter of fact, Mike Modi and I left from Judson, and we met up with um, one of our uh, former regulars, uh, husband, you may remember Ariella Austin. Her name is Ariella Winfield now. She's married to a great guy named Ethan. And Ethan drove us down there last week. And I told them, I said, I need a stool. I'm not going to be able to stand the entire time. And they said, it's no problem. And so they got me a stool and I sat down on it and I couldn't see over the podium. It was a problem, you know, fail. So ended up having to stand for most of that one, but you know, we had a great night. Uh, one gave their life to Christ last week, uh, and Brother Doug, it's just always good to be with them, and so we just praise the Lord for that. Pastor Brad reminded me this week that we are getting close to the start of football season. That's a good thing, isn't it, Brad? Finally, time to get rid of all this baseball stuff. And uh, for me, that is a chance to be excited and disappointed all at the same time because you enter with all the hope in the world, but then you're a Tennessee fan. And lately, that's just been rough. Tennessee Titans fan, lately that's been rough, but you never know. This year could be the year. Uh, but I know a lot of you are baseball fanatics. doesn't move me in the same way that football and basketball do. And I think the reason that it does is, can you imagine, you know, like when you think about football and some of the storied traditions, you think about Notre Dame and you think about, you know, them giving these great speeches of inspiration. I mean, you don't do that in baseball. Hey, we're just going to go out there and pick some grass in the outfield right now because it's going to be a while till the ball's hit to you. But when a ball is hit to you, you run for two seconds and pick it up and throw it in with all your might. It just doesn't hold the same, right? Basketball speech, a football speech, you kind of get this pep talk. You kind of get fired up, you know, because the action is immediate. And as we finish the book of James, and I thought we would be finished with it tonight, but I actually think we have one more sermon in the book of James next week on restoration. But I want you to think of this as James' last pep talk to the church. It's really the last things that he's saying to the church as he's finishing this book. And as he begins to talk about it, what he's talking about is really crucial because it's the ministry of prayer as he talks to the church. He's asking them to be a church that prays. And I think what he says is very important. You probably would agree, but a lot of times it's all just very easy to overlook prayer. Uh, Dad and I were in uh, Washington, D.C. area, Silver Springs, Maryland, and their church had a slogan that differentiated between the work of the church and the church at work. There's the church at work, and that's very different than just the work of the church around town. You know, we got to get some budgets done. We got to but, but when you're working as the church, that's different, isn't it? That's changing lives. And we talk about prayer, and we know that it's important, but a lot of times we just overlook at it. I think most of us are very comfortable with doing, you know, all kinds of work. We design programs, and we do all kinds of things. You know, we design worship services, and we design children's ministries and youth ministries, and all that stuff is super important and glad that we're able to do it and glad that we do it. But I think as we look at the exhortation that James gives us at the end of the book, we see something different. So look at James chapter 5 with me tonight. And we're going to start reading in verse 13. James chapter 5, verse 13. That is our text. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. 
Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. As we look at this last couple of passages in the book of James, could you stop for a second and just kind of think about what we just read in light of the fact that James was the brother of Christ? Think about that for just a moment. That James was the brother of Christ. And when Jesus spoke about God's house, he spoke of it as a house of prayer. He said that when you come into this house, it is to be a house of prayer. And when he spoke about prayer, he gave us the Lord's prayer or the disciples' prayer. He modeled it for us. He taught us how to pray. He would have shown that. And James may have seen his own brother, the Savior, slip away from time to time when the work that he was doing, the ministry that he was doing, was at its peak. It, it always seems that when things were right at, at the tipping point to greatness, Jesus slips away into prayer. Feed the 5,000, get on a boat and leave. Right? He's slipping away. It, it's interesting that Jesus does that. He asked us to, or he told us rather, when we prayed to ask, to knock, to seek, that we would find, the doors would be opened unto us, and if we asked of these things, they would be given to us. He told us to be persistent in prayer. Now his brother writes about the importance of prayer for us, and as he does so, do you think James might be guiding us in prayer in light of some of the things that he saw from his own brother? Could it be that these are some of the lessons that he'd kind of assimilated into his own life and he begins to say to this church, I learned some things about prayer from my brother, the Savior. And as you set up church life and the work of the church, make sure that you're a praying church. And as you pray, here are some things to do. He looks at the ministry of prayer and, oper and how it operates in our church and he gives us an understanding for it. And as we do this tonight... I've got to tell you that I'm learning about prayer every day just like you. It's one of the great mysteries of the faith. Why does God need us to pray about things that he already knows about? Why, why would he need you to do that? It has to be that as we communicate with God, he's changing us in the process, right? He's conforming us into the image of his son. And maybe it's just that like a good father, he does like to give us those things that we ask for. So as we look at the mystery of prayer, there's some insight for us tonight, and I think we can find joy in our prayer life if we do it like this. James talks about prayer in several different ways. First, he says that prayer is an anytime kind of prayer. So you could pray with an anytime kind of prayer. He begins verse 13 by using two words that describe the height and the depth of human emotion. And what he wants us to see, I think, is that there's a never really a bad time to pray. If you're in the lowest of lows or the highest of highs, it's a great time for you to be in prayer. And what he wants us to see about that is that we can be confident that prayer is our very first option, not our last option. So he begins to say in verse 13 
as he talks about, is anyone suffering? We might be tempted at this point to think about suffering as a physical malady. And it could be. It very well could be that someone could be suffering from a physical malady. But he actually gets to that a little bit later. And when he uses this word suffering, the word that he uses is the word for trouble or enduring hardship. So this is when life just begins to press on you. Everyday life that, that is kind of pushing back on you a little bit. And he says, if anyone is suffering, notice the word that he uses, he must pray. Not, hey, it's a good idea if you pray, you know. Hey, if you're going through a rough spot in your life, you might think about praying. He said, no, if you're in a tough spot, you must pray. I know a lot of tough people who've been able to endure a lot, but that's not what he says to do. He doesn't say just bear up under it and suck it up, buttercup. He says, pray. You must pray. Don't get tough. Get weak. Get on your knees before the Lord and start asking God to help you in the trials and the tribulations of life. So it might look like this. You're struggling with something at work. What should you do about it? You must pray. You're not sure about what to do with a financial decision in the home. What should you do? You must pray. You're under persecution. What should you do? You must pray. Option one is prayer. Don't spend a bunch of time just thinking about the issue in your life. Don't call everybody that you know and ask them their advice until you've prayed. Godly counsel follows godly prayer. Pray. As soon as you feel the lump in your throat, that kind of sick feeling in the pit of your stomach, and you start to go, I can't believe I'm having to go through this, stop right then and pray. And then he says, when you're cheerful, or as some translations say, happy or merry, he says, sing praises. This is when you just break out to the Lord in song, right? Sounds funny, doesn't it, that life would be so good that you might just sing a song, but we used to do this in, in a church that I pastored. Whether we needed to or not, and whether we felt like we were joyful or not, we sang something called the doxology. If you're not familiar with the doxology, it's pretty simple. It just says something like this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. It may be modeled after something that the Apostle Paul did when he was writing several of his books. Every now and then he just burst into a spontaneous praise moment where he just says, it's just too good to keep to myself. God is so good. I've just got to sing about it. I'm just going to let this overflow out of my life. And he begins to do that. And James says, if you're cheerful, if you're happy, if you've got everything going your way and God has just blessed you with the answers to prayer that you need, what should you do? Just be cheerful, sing. Let a grateful heart sing to the Lord. Let him know that you're filled up. And as you sing and release those emotions, use that to glorify God. If you get a new job, praise the Lord. If you get an answered prayer, praise the Lord. If you get a vacation, praise the Lord. If your kid comes to know Christ, praise the Lord. I mean, whatever it is, stop and just praise the Lord. If you're with your friends, praise the Lord. So whether you're happy or sad, overwhelmed or relaxed, it's always appropriate to respond in prayer and praise to the Lord. But there's a second prayer that he offers. And I've titled this the leadership prayer because it has to do with the leadership of the church. Look at verse 14 again. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. This is one of the most fascinating verses in this text to me, I think, in the book of James. Because we have to ask the question, why? Why does James tell the sick to call for the elders of the church? And why does he tell the elders to pray for the sick? Well, the first question seems easier to answer for me than the second question. If you're sick in bed and you do not request prayer, it's almost as if you're saying, I don't believe God can do anything about it. Right? So he says, if you're sick and and you're at home and, and you can't get out of the situation that you're in, call for the elders of the church and have them pray, on, pray for you. None of us would say that we don't believe in prayer tonight. I, I doubt that. I doubt that you're here on a Sunday night. Chances are you believe in prayer. But a lot of times, here's how we do that. We may be sick and we say, well, I don't want anybody to know about it. Why? Are we prideful? Do we not really believe that God can move? Do you want me to put that on the prayer list? No, don't, no, I don't want anybody to pray for me. Oh. I don't know that there's anything too big or too small to bring before the Lord in prayer. So James says, if that's the situation that you find yourself in, call for the leadership of the church and ask them to pray for you. You know, we have no ability to correct the own, our own issues in our lives, do we? We really don't. I mean, it's, it's a funny thing we really are relying on the Lord all the time. We just don't realize it. Some days we go through a day and we, we don't realize that we had to rely on the Lord. But we are relying on him all the time. And as long as we're depending on our own resources and abilities, we're not depending on God's resources and abilities. And I know it's a dumb question, but I think it's worth asking. Whose resources would you rather depend on? Yours or the Lord's? James says, call for the leaders of the church. When a person asks for prayer, I believe that's a response of faith. Some people don't always see it that way, but I think that's true. Have you ever asked for prayer in desperation? It's a response of faith. Pray for me. I don't know what else to do. Pray for me. I know that this goes to the Lord. Pray for me. That's, that's faith coming out. I've asked for prayer when I couldn't cry anymore, when I couldn't think straight, when I didn't have any more answers. But that's the sign of faith in our life. When we look to the Lord and we look to the body of Christ and say, pray for me. It's saying, I don't have anything. I'm going to rely on the one who has everything. Pray for me. The last time I was asked to come to the bedside of a sick person was on a Sunday night. And... Right before we started church, I got a call from one of our members, and they said, can you please come and bring one of the deacons and pray for my husband? Okay. I said, I'll be there as soon as Sunday night church is done. We left. We went. This guy was just having setback after setback, what should have been a routine issue. I mean, you know how it is, right? It's a routine surgery. Dad's fond of saying that it's minor surgery if it's you and it's major if it's me, right? It's routine if it's you, right? And we went because what had been a routine surgical procedure had turned into several weeks of this gentleman being in the hospital. And he just kept getting infections and things and it was just setback after setback. And so my brother-in-law, Justin, and I went. And we went and 
walked into the room and just said, how do you want us to pray? Pray for us to get this infection under control and that the doctors would have insight and that we'd be able to leave here. Okay. And that's what we did. I saw him not long ago. Sometimes you just have to cry out in desperation, but that leads to our second question. Is there something special about the prayers of your pastor? Are they different than the prayers you offer for yourself? Yes and no. How'd you like that for a political answer, right? Yes and no. When you go to seminary, you don't take a healing class. I wish that you did. I really wish that you did. I wish that there was a formula that we could speak that would, we would know, like, hey, this person is really sick, and if you pray this, God will raise them. He's bound by it. You know, but it doesn't work that way. So in that way, the prayers that you offer for someone are just as important as the prayers of the leadership of the church. But I think that oversimplifies the issue because, yes, in the sense that you're calling on the elders who shepherd you before the Lord. And doing so is saying, God, I'm reaching out to those you've placed in authority over my lives. Have them come pray for me. And the person who calls for the elders is one who's in dire straits. If they ask the elder, the pastor, to come to the house to care for his soul, then we do that. And the picture really here is given, I think, in James of the elders standing around the bed of the sick person praying for them. And they use olive oil as a symbolic reminder of God's power and the Holy Spirit's work in healing. Notice what the passage actually never says. It never says that the elder heals. It doesn't. If you look back, what does it say? It says the Lord will heal. And that's a great reminder for all of us. If I preach tonight and someone gets saved or someone got saved last night, who did it? God. Right? If we pray and someone is healed, who did it? God. If we have success and experience these things in our lives, who does that? God does that in all of our lives, right? And so if you raise good children, God did it. If you have unbelievable talent, God did that. If, if you understand that, that's primary thinking for the believer. God does the work. So does this work today? Or did it die out with the early church? What do you think? Does God still heal people? Or is that passe? Are we wasting our time? If we are, most Southern Baptist churches are wasting their time every Wednesday night because most of our prayer concerns center around the sick. I don't think that we're wasting our time. I think that God still heals people. I think that it wouldn't be in the scripture for us if God didn't want to do it. You say, well, God only parted the Red Sea once, but he could do it again if he wanted to. I believe that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God could do whatever he wants to? I do. And so, God uses some things today for us that certainly weren't available then. For instance, in my own life, I firmly believe when I called on this church to pray for me four and a half years ago, that God intervened in my life. It was four years ago yesterday that I had a procedure to close a hole in my heart. Did God heal me? I believe that he did. Did he use the hands of some skilled and gifted people? I believe that he did. I don't see those things as opposites of one another. 
God uses that. But sometimes God doesn't need anyone to be skilled and gifted. He can raise someone up. And he does that. Obviously, God doesn't answer every prayer that we pray for healing. Paul himself prayed that the thorn would be removed from his flesh. Over and over again, and the Lord said, "Uh uh-uh. Sorry. You're keeping that one. God chose to leave it there. Sometimes the final prayer is answered when the one we love is called home. But what I do know is that sometimes God heals and sometimes he leaves us with things that shape our character and our faith and it's up to him. There's one more thing for us to look at in this passage before we move on and it has to do with healing from the results of forgiveness of sin. Most people love to believe that God would heal you from sickness but I often find those people believe that God would never use sickness to chastise you. It's in the scripture. Sometimes God brings sickness into our life and it chastises us. Not all of the time. We were with a friend the other night who told us that he was pretty sure that God made him sick because he read a book. I said, okay. I don't know, man. I mean, I'm going to defer to you, I guess. Was it a bad book? He wouldn't say. Uh, you know, but I mean, sometimes God uses these things. And what James says is that our bodies and souls can be healed when we pray. So you have the anytime prayer, the prayer of the leadership, and then we see in the third prayer to pray for each other. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. This verse has been overemphasized by Catholics who believe that only a priest can absolve you from sin. However, I think Protestants may be just as guilty as underemphasizing this verse because what he says there is that there's a confessional aspect one to another of our sin and that God does something in our life. Confessing your sins to another believer allows you the freedom of not carrying secret sin. I've said this to you before, but I think it's a powerful line. A friend of mine wrote it one time when he said, secrets lose their power when they have no place to hide. They're gone. The power is gone. Satan can't hold that over you anymore. If everybody knew how you were living, tell somebody how you're living. Ask them to pray for you. And then you don't have to worry about that one anymore. Confess your sins one to another. Go to a brother or sister in Christ and begin to allow them to have accountability in your life. It allows you to fight the sin that you're dealing with in your life with prayer. Someone else comes alongside of you and starts to pray for you in that struggle in your life. And instead of trying to whitewash ourselves in front of other people so that they think highly of us, maybe a little transparency goes a long way. And James says, if you'll do that, you'll be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The King James just came out in me. Did you catch that? That's how I memorized it. The effective prayer of a righteous man will availeth much. So this is brother to brother, sister to sister. We bear one another's burdens. We do this every week in our life group class. We do it in the halls of this church, but it could be so, something so much more. You can specifically ask someone, pray for me. I'm struggling with it. I'm struggling with anger. Pray for me. I'm struggling with lust. Pray for me. I'm struggling with spending too much money. Pray for me. I'm not obeying God in this. I need you to pray for me. That's always appropriate for us to do it. And what do you see See here? You see that we're healed. Healed from what? Certainly sickness is what it says. But also when we pray for one another, there can be healing in our bodies, but our souls as well. Pray for me. I'm struggling with this and it, it does something in our lives. And when we engage in spiritual warfare for one another, 
It's an incredible privilege and it's a mighty act of prayer that can set us loose from the bonds of sin in our lives. But this one comes with a caveat. It said, the prayer of the righteous can accomplish much. Do you think your righteousness is tied to your prayer life in any way? I do. When we were lost, dead in our trespasses and sins, there was a distance between us and the Lord, wasn't there? That's a great way of describing it. Jesus had to bridge the distance. He had to bridge the gap. It's not that you lose your salvation when you're not righteous, but there's a fracture in the relationship, just like it is in an earthly relationship, that can only be healed when forgiveness is granted again and forgiven, right? I mean, that's, that's how that works. So when we persist in sin, in unrighteousness, it's hurting our relationship with the Father, isn't it? Because he is holy, he says, be holy as I am holy. So when we want to have an effective prayer life, we need to be living in the righteousness of Christ. But we need to be righteous, Blessing always follows obedience. Have you heard me say that a hundred times? Blessing always follows obedience. And so if we want to have an effective prayer life, it starts with righteousness in our own life. And what do you imagine the righteous prayer might accomplish? Would you turn in your Bibles back to the book of 1 Kings? Chapter 16. In verse 33, 1 Kings 16, verse 33. James uses the story of a man named Elijah, my favorite, maybe my favorite Old Testament character. Unbelievably in tune with what God was doing, used to do a bunch of great things, and yet flawed and frail and scared all at the same time. A fascinating character. But 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 33, Ahab was the evil king. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael, the Bethlehite, built Jericho and laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his first son, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain three years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself at the brook of the Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Of particular interest to those of you who have been here in our Joshua series that we finished this morning is this verse in verse 34 how prophecy was fulfilled regarding Jericho. God told them if they rebuilt the city, the consequences would be dire. A man lost his firstborn son and his youngest son because he chose to ignore those things. I guess God's not kidding when he says don't do something, right? That, that's the, the thing of, that you see there. But then we see Elijah interacting with this king Ahab. 
and the prophecy came true. Three and a half years without rain. Can you imagine? Right? The point of, of this scripture being referenced in the book of James goes back to what I said about professional prayer warriors. They're not professional prayer warriors. James dispels that myth for you. There's nobody you can pray who's a perfect prayer healer kind of thing. And anybody, by the way, who sets themselves up to be that, be very, very suspect. Be very suspect. What does the scripture say? Elijah was just like you. Now, I read that and I go, right, wink, wink. Elijah was just like me, carried up chariots, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, he was just like me, called down fire from heaven. I've done that. We were exactly the same. I understand how he lived. The scripture says he was just like you and just like me. Either he was or he wasn't. And James is trying to teach us something. He had a special anointing on his life for a season of ministry. Right? You have a special anointing on your life for a season of ministry too. God's given you a gift and abilities and you're to use those for the glory of God. Absolutely. And when you pray, you ought to call down heaven just like Elijah did. And you ought to call down asking God to do what only he could do. And so God's not calling us to be Elijah. God's calling us to be like Elijah in prayer. A man just like Elijah, a woman just like Elijah, who believes that when they shout towards heaven, God hears and is ready to move. So what are you praying for? Have you given up on prayer? Have you? Is there someone that you've written off in your life that they're never going to change? Don't need to pray for them anymore. They're never going to change. Are you tired? Are you suffering? You must pray. Are you happy? You must give praise. Are you sick? You must call on the elders of the church. He says, do it. I'm going to ask us to do something a little bit different tonight. I'm going to close us. Kirk and Daniel are going to come. Would you bow your heads and, and close your eyes? It might be time for you to obey Scripture and answer the you must pray part with one of these things. Could it be that there's something that you need to be praying about that you've given up on? I recently heard a man say that a lot of times God delays in answering our prayers and we take that to mean no. That just means delay. Could you begin to pray again tonight? It might be that someone here needs prayer for something very specific. You might just need to reach out to someone and say, I need you to pray for me. I'm struggling with this in my life. Okay? Let's pray for that. But it might be that you're here tonight and you're struggling with 
sickness. And you would just say, I need the elders to pray for me. In a moment when I start praying, we're just going to stay in kind of a state of prayer. And I'm going to ask our pastors to come to the front. We have some anointing oil. We won't be long. But if that's you tonight and you just say, I need this prayer, then they're going to pray for you. You'll be able to go back to your seat. We won't tarry, but we'll stay here as long as the Lord moves. Father, as we come before you, we want this to be a house of prayer. For some of us, we need to pray in faith tonight again. Asking you to move in such a way that you change our mindset about prayer. Father, some of us have read through the years that Elijah was a man just like us and we don't believe it. We need to repent of that. And so tonight we come before you and we pray. And we ask you to have your way here. In Jesus' name. You keep your heads back.